series today called Leverage, um, and to help you kind of get acclimated to it, um, just a question to start off. How many of you have heard the name Archimedes before? Anyone? So when I first heard the name Archimedes, uh, I thought of the owl from... uh, Sword in the Stone from Disney. That's the first time I ever heard the name Archimedes. My dad's a big cartoon lover, and so we would watch cartoons growing up. And that's who I thought Archimedes was for a long time, is he's the owl in Disney's Sword in the Stone. Uh, But Archimedes is actually a real person, and you probably know that. Uh, Third century BC uh, is when he was born and when he lived. He was a famous mathematician and physicist. Uh, Archimedes is credited with discovering this physical force that we know as leverage. Um, He actually is credited as saying that if he had a stick long enough and could get a distance far enough from the earth, that he could move the entire earth with just a stick. Now, we've since learned that Aristotle had some pupils that predated Archimedes uh, that write about leverage and levers, Um, But Archimedes is the one that's credited with it. And here's a simple understanding of what leverage is. Leverage is a force that enables us to lift or move a load that is heavier than we could otherwise do on our own. And the most simple form of utilizing leverage is using what they call a first-class lever, and that's where you have a beam uh, and you have a fulcrum. And your effort, your energy, or a machine's effort or energy goes onto one side of the beam, and it enables you to lift something much heavier or move something much greater on the other side. That's a simple definition of what leverage is. We use leverage every day, by the way. Door handles are, are based upon the physical force of leverage. Your ice cream scoop utilizes leverage. Uh, you couldn't otherwise dig into that ice cream, or you probably shouldn't with your bare hands and just kind of face it in. Um, but using that ice cream scoop, it's like a, even a shovel. A shovel is a type of lever. A wheelbarrow is a type of lever. We know that um, it's likely, we don't know, it's likely that the Egyptians built the pyramids using leverage because you can multiply uh, a source of energy or a force and effort uh, exponentially uh, when you use leverage. A seesaw on the playground utilizes leverage. Uh, that's why if you have a lighter person on the other end and you're heavier and you apply your effort to one side, you're liable to launch them much further than they intend to go, which is the game on the playground, right? So this is the idea of leverage, and and I want you to keep this picture in mind of our effort being applied to one part of a beam that then is able to multiply uh, to lift something that's heavier in this series. In particular, I want you to think about how we make progress in this mission of God. Prior to me going on the global impact trip with our global partner, TCM, um, and our guest speakers, we had just finished a series called Missio Day. Uh, this series that looked at the mission of God. Uh, we said very succinctly that God's mission is this. It's to bring his blessing throughout the entire world. He wants every person, uh, every human, young and old, to experience the fullness of his blessing, his character, his goodness, his glory, his greatness. Uh, we saw in that series a number of things. One of the things we saw is that we are made for that mission. God wants to use us to bring his blessing to the world. On its own, the mission of God is way too heavy for any one of us to bear or to lift. On its own, the mission of God is too heavy for all of us as followers of Jesus to bear or to lift. We cannot bring his blessing to the entire world on our own. 
But as we give ourselves to it, as we apply our effort and our energy to it, he multiplies it to accomplish that mission. And maybe even a creative way to think of it is that beam in that simple lever. Think of it as Jesus Christ and his cross. Think of the fulcrum as God's faithfulness and his power. And so as we give ourselves to him, he does the work through his power to accomplish his mission. We have leverage in giving our lives to him that he multiplies to lift the load of his mission. And so over the coming weeks, the next four weeks, including today, we're gonna look at how we leverage. What does it take to leverage our lives? What does it look like practically to leverage our lives for the mission of God? The first three weeks of this series, we're gonna be in the same passage, Romans chapter 12, uh, verses one through eight. And then the final week of this series, we're gonna jump to a couple of other Paul, of, of Paul's other letters um, as we kind of round out the series. Today, we're gonna be looking specifically at Romans chapter 12, verse one. But to start us off, we're gonna read verses one and two. I know it may seem uh, odd that we're gonna look at just one verse today, but I think you'll understand that there's so much weight, there's so much significance in this one verse and in verse two that we can't really do them justice just in one morning or, or one message together. So if you find Romans chapter 12, one and two, uh, we're gonna read them together because they're part of one thought, one sentence in the original language, uh, and then we're gonna come back and just unpack verse one today. And so as you find Romans 12, uh, one and two in your Bible or your Bible app, go ahead and bookmark it because we'll be there again in the next couple of weeks. I wanna give you a little bit of background. Romans 12 verses one and two serves as a natural pivot point in Paul's letter to the Romans. Uh, something that you may not be aware of, uh, if you're not, I'll make you aware of it, is that the letters that Paul wrote were intended to be read in one entire sitting. So when Paul would have um, his companion pen the letter to the Romans, he intended that as it circulated among believers in Rome, that they would sit down in their house church, in their small group, and they would read the entire letter from beginning to end. We'll talk about this a little bit more later on, but Romans chapters one through 11 details what God has done in human history, the plight of humanity, and how he has worked and, and act mercifully uh, to help humanity. And so the original audience would have been sitting in these house churches hearing about God's story and what he had done and what it means for them, and they'd get to Romans chapter 12, verses one and two, and there'd be this pivot to more practical instructions. So Romans 12, one and two is kind of this place that holds together the whole book. Chapters one through 11 lead up to this point, verses one and two then lead us into what follows in chapters 12, 13, 14, and into 15. So we're gonna look at Romans chapter 12, one and two. Let's read those first two verses here at the beginning. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. And the thought continues. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. 
And again, well, we're going to separate Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and verse 2 because of their significance. They really are one thought that comes together. So think of this message as part one, uh, next week's message part two, as we move in and set up how to leverage our lives uh, for King Jesus. So verse 1, Paul begins, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, if you were sitting in a house church in Rome, and you've just heard uh, Priscilla uh, read Paul's words. And he details God's mercy and sin and the judgment that comes upon humanity by how Jesus provides rescue. As you listen to that, maybe it's you know after a meal and you're growing a little sleepy as he gets to chapter 11 and talks about the uh, disobedience of the Jewish people and how they're gonna have another chance to come to follow Jesus. And he'd get to Romans chapter 12, verse one, and you would hear these words, therefore I urge you, and you would perk up. Oh wait, Paul's got a strong word for us. That word urge when Paul uses it is this word that is a word that's intended to compel Uh, The big word that we would use to describe what I urge you is, is an exhortation. An exhortation is this strong challenge, this strong word of encouragement. When you hear someone say, I urge you in Paul's days, you know they're going to have a strong word for you. Uh, Some versions say, I appeal to you or I plead with you. You can feel the passion. Paul is saying, this is really important. Pay attention. Something hard is coming, but something good is coming. And so as you follow, and we'll see it even today in Romans chapter 12, you'll find some hard things that Paul shares. But we need to understand the heart that they come from. They come from a pastoral heart. Paul loves the people of Rome. Paul loves the believers in Rome. Paul has a deep care and concern and compassion for them. Two places that we can confirm this. One is the book of Acts. Multiple times Luke tells us in his record of the early church that Paul longed to go to Rome. Part of Paul's calling is that he felt that God really wanted him one day to end up in Rome. Why? Because he knew that Rome was the most influential city in the entire Roman Empire. He knew that if he could bring this great news of who Jesus is, what he had done, and the transformation that he brings to lives in the city of Rome, in that place of cultural influence, that then the gospel, the message of Jesus could spread far more quickly throughout the Roman world. So he had this urgency, he wanted to go to Rome. He speaks of it a number of times, Luke tells us. That's one place we have evidence for his care and concern and passion and compassion for the people in Rome. Another place is right here in the letter to the Romans. If you look at verse, I mean, sorry, verse chapter 16, uh, you'll see that Paul ends his letter by simply giving greetings uh, to a number of people. Just some examples if you have your Bibles. Verse 3, greet Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ Jesus. They risked their lives for me. Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. So Priscilla and Aquila somehow have landed in Rome. People that he cares deeply for are here. Verse five, greet also the church that meets at their house. Greet my dear friend, uh, Epinetus, who was the first convert to Christ in the province of Asia. The province of Asia, where Ephesus was, where the region of Galatia was. 
Like the very first person that came to follow Jesus through Paul's testimony is now back in Rome. Do do, do you hear his concern? Do you hear his care? Do you feel his care and his compassion? He cares deeply for the Romans. And I want you to see that because the urging that follows is born out of his passion for them. It's a pastoral heart that says, this is really important. And I share that with you because I want you to hear as I share these words over the coming weeks that these are words are born out of my pastoral heart for you. I'm not saying I'm Paul. But I will tell you that the whole reason that I went into the ministry to serve in churches and to preach and to teach people God's word is because I believe that God's will and God's plans are best. And I know that there is a struggle and there is a fight and there has been a struggle and there has been a fight in the church in the United States of America to fully honor King Jesus. And I desperately want people to see and to be challenged to go all in, to follow him wholeheartedly. And so even as we hear Paul's urging today and in the coming weeks, I want you to hear my heart for you. Um, I care deeply for the body of Christ all around the world. I care deeply for the body of Christ in America, and I want us to get it right. And I care deeply for you. This is the place that God has brought me in this season of my life, and I I have to be faithful with it. And so Paul urges, and I urge you. So what is Paul urging? Look back at verse one. I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to do what? To offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. I told you it was gonna be a strong word. Paul says, I urge you, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Now let's keep in mind that that Paul is writing to believers in Rome. Rome, as as well as the whole Roman Empire, was known for pagan worship that involved animal sacrifices. In fact, Paul writes in his letters to the Corinthians about not eating meat sacrificed to idols, there was animal sacrifice. The, the Jewish Christians in Rome would have known from their Jewish history about animal sacrifice. What do we know about animal sacrifice? When an animal is killed and slaughtered in worship, whether it is for God or for uh, some pagan idol, that animal's life is completely given up. It's destroyed. The, the, their whole life is surrendered. And so Paul very intentionally uses this language, but he's not calling the early believers to kill themselves He's saying, no, you're a living sacrifice. You're gonna give me, you're gonna give me, you're gonna give God all of you. He's already used language similar to this, Romans chapter six. I think I only have verse 13 for you on the screen, but I'll I'll rewind to to verse 12. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Verse 13, do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. Uh, Paul's talked previously about the body and said it's, 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 it's every part of you. So we know here, even in Romans 12, he's saying to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. He's saying give God everything, every part of your life. 
Sean is away on some bereavement leave today, uh, much needed after the, the death of his father and some hard things in his family. And so um, I didn't have a chance to get a video clip, but the video clip I wanted to have for you is if you've seen it on like fail videos or America's Funniest Home videos, uh, when a dog like steals some food from the table or something and uh, the, the, the owner finds them and they're like, okay, give it to me. And the dog spits out a little bit. Nope, give me more. Nope, he spits out even more. I want everything, and the dog just kind of like lets everything out. Like, that's the picture I want to have you, because God is calling us to give him everything, not just a little bit, not just a little bit more, but he wants everything from us. And by everything, we mean everything. He wants your ambitions. He wants your dreams. He wants your abilities. He wants your talents. He wants your romantic relationships. He wants your friendships. He wants your possessions. He wants your financial resources. He wants your connections. He wants your influence. He wants everything. He says, offer your bodies, offer your whole selves as a living sacrifice to me. And what we're looking at in this leverage series is how do we leverage all that we have and all that we are for all that God is How do we take everything and give it to him and say, God, you use it. You use me. You use my life. You use my influence. You use my gifts and my talents. You use my time and and you further your mission. I trust you. You can do far more with what I have than I could ever do with it on my own. And isn't this the struggle for us? It's what sometimes keeps people from wanting to even follow Jesus. It's a hard word that I would give everything to him? Why? Because we like our control, don't we? I want to be the one that dictates where my talents are used. I want to be the one that controls my wealth and my resources. I want to come up with my own dreams. I don't always want to invite Jesus into those dreams. Like dating life? Come on. Like I want to choose who I date and what I do in my dating relationship. Do I want God to tell me what to do? Like that's the challenge we have. Will we give him everything? Will we give up control? But when Paul calls us and God calls us to offer our bodies, he's asking for everything. See, here's the question that we need to be asking as followers of Jesus regularly and routinely, and it's a critical question, it's a significant question, it's an important question, is what am I holding back from God? What am I withholding? Again, think of that picture. His mission is heavy. His mission is weighty. It's what you and I were created for. What is it that we're refusing to place upon the lever of God and his power and his strength and his kingdom. What are you holding back? What are we holding back? Are we holding back our calendars, our time? Are we holding them back and saying, listen, God, I don't really want you to tell me what to do with my free time. I don't want you to tell me what to do with my schedule. I don't want you to tell me what to do when I've got a few moments here. Like, I want to keep my calendar for me. I like the pace of my life. I don't really care if it doesn't leave margin for you. I'm just gonna keep that to myself. Do we withhold our calendars from him? Do do we withhold certain behaviors and desires from him? Do we say, you know, God, I'd rather overindulge in this substance, this food, this alcohol, this this drug, prescription medication, whatever it is. I'm I'm gonna gonna withhold because I don't want you to tell me what to do with that. Are we holding back some of our behaviors, some of our desires? Are we holding back 
Again, our romantic relationships. Are we saying, God, listen, I don't want you to tell me who I'm gonna date. I don't want you to tell me how to behave in this relationship. Are we withholding our sexual desire and behavior from him? Are we withholding our financial resources from him? I mean, how many times have followers of Jesus heard the words of Jesus as it relates to money and the words of Paul as it relates to money, but yet so many refuse to say, God, I, I'm not gonna invest in your kingdom. I'm gonna keep it for me. Are we withholding our mouths from him? God, I don't, I don't, want, I don't want to stop gossiping. I don't want to stop telling filthy jokes. I don't want to stop making fun of people. And so I'm going to withhold that from you. What are we withholding from God? My encouragement to you this week, like this is your biggest homework assignment. I'll give you one more to go along with it in a little bit. But would you just take an inventory this week? Would you prayerfully ask God to show you what are you holding back from him? Pray it. Don't feel like you have to come up with a quick answer, but every day commit it. Talk about it with him on the car on the way to work. Talk about him on the bus stop while you're waiting for the bus to come. Like, God, what am I holding back from you? Ask him to show you what you're holding back from him because God wants everything from us. And if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, at this point you're probably thinking like, what? Like, this is overwhelming. I gotta give God everything? Well, why would I wanna give God everything? Like, who can do that? And that's where I want to show you, and I want to show the rest of us, remind the rest of us that there's a greater motivation for surrendering everything to God. If we go back to Romans chapter 12, verse 1, it says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Paul urges us, God urges us to give him everything. But it's not to earn his favor. It's not to earn his grace. It's in view of his mercy. He says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, what's that therefore connect to? Whenever you see therefore in scripture, it means that what precedes it is related to what's about to follow. The therefore in Romans chapter 12, verse one, applies to all of chapters one through 11. Here's a little bonus assignment. Why don't you read Romans chapters one through 11 this week? And what you will see is you will see a detailed view of how God has worked in humanity. You will see Paul share with us what happened in Adam. How, how Adam sinned and sin came to humanity through one man. But just as sin comes through one man, so does grace and deliverance come through another, the second Adam, Jesus. You will read about sin and its devastating effects. You'll have those, those statements like Romans chapter three, verse 23, that all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. Every single human being will sin. We will break God's heart. We will break his commands. We will oppose his best for us. But we also have Romans chapter five, verse eight, that says that while we were still sinners, someone died for us. Who was that? Jesus. Jesus came and he rescued us. And then we have Romans chapter six, verse 23, that tells us that the wages of sin, it's death. Like what we deserve, the, the just reward for our sinful behavior, even one sin, is that we would die because we have a holy God who is without sin. But what does he finish Romans six twenty-three with? The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so what follows in Romans chapters one through 11 is this beautiful portrayal of mankind's brokenness 
in God's mercy and his deliverance. And even builds up to this place in Romans chapter 11, which by the way is so timely given what's happened in our world. But he reminds us that there are Jews who have refused Jesus. And yet there will be another opportunity for them to come to know him. The disobedience gives them an opportunity to showcase his mercy. And when you take Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 11, when you take into account all of Scripture and all the mercies of God, by the way, Lamentations tells us that those mercies are new every morning. There's mercy upon mercy upon mercy that God gives. It's in view of all of that mercy that we will offer everything to God as a living sacrifice. This is one of the things that makes Christianity unique among all world religions. Every other world religion says, you do these things to earn an experience later. But with Christianity, the true religion, our God says, I've already acted. You you don't live, you don't put forth effort to earn my grace. No, I've already preemptively given you grace and mercy. Now you live in response to that grace. And so we look at what God has done in Jesus Christ and we say, you've given me everything. Why don't I want to give everything to you? And that mercy is what motivates us to live on purpose for him. That mercy motivates me to say, God, you get everything. God, what am I withholding from you? Let me bring it all to the table. Let me put it all on the the lever, the beam of your life and your cross and your kingdom for your power and your glory. And you're going to accomplish your mission through me because I'm giving you everything because of all that you've done for me. His mercy motivates us. Here's your second homework assignment. The first, do an inventory. What are you holding back? The second is this. Would you spend time intentionally asking God to remind you of his mercies? Would you just start a list, beginning this afternoon, beginning tomorrow morning, and just list, God, this is what you have done. Sure, start with the big ones. Uh, You gave me Jesus. That's pretty huge, right? You have rescued me. You have saved me. And just continue on. God, you put breath in my lungs today. God, you give me hope in a world that's growing increasingly dark. Just list mercy after mercy. Go back in his word. Wherever you're reading currently in scripture, like open it up and just ask God to remind you of his mercies. Create an inventory of his mercies and then let that fuel how you respond to the things that you're holding back from God. It'll help you leverage your life for him. He gave everything for us and that motivates us to give everything, absolutely everything to him. He is worth it. He is worthy and he can do far more with your life in my life than I could ever do with it and you could ever do with it on your own. I want to finish with a modern parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who is fascinated by Civil War history. And in fact, this man spent most of his free time outside of his job as an engineer just reading biographies and historical fiction about the Civil War. Every time this man had the opportunity, he would check out estate sales in the deep south just to see what he could find, if he could uncover some sort of relic. On this particular occasion, the the man came to an estate sale, and it it was an odd one in that everything was being sold as an entire lot. And so the house, the land, the possessions inside the home, and he looked at pictures online, and and he had seen that that probably the value of what he saw uh, would be mean that the property went for somewhere around $100,000. It was dilapidated. Uh, there weren't very many things. But because he loves 
history, he went to see if there were any relics from the Civil War. And so he made his way there, and he makes his way through the house, and he, he sees a few relics on the wall. He, he sees some old rifles that seem to date back to the Civil War. And as he made his way through the home, he's taking inventory, he, he comes into the basement. In the damp, dark basement, he, he takes out his flashlight, and he turns it on, and he starts looking around the basement. He sees the mold and the mildew creeping up on things, and in the corner, he spots a roll-top desk, and so he makes his way to the roll-top desk, and he, he opens it up, and he begins rummaging through the damp papers inside. He ends up finding a kind of hidden drawer and compartment and opens it up. Inside is a pouch, and he opens the pouch, and in that pouch are several gold coins from the Confederate States. Immediately knowing his history, he's like, these coins are worth probably hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not a million dollars or more. And suddenly, this young engineer starts thinking to himself, can I get this whole property? But he does an inventory. He realizes he has about $10,000 in the savings account. He'd have to sell his house and his car and use all of his savings to buy this property and have the winning bid. And he begins to wrestle is it worth it? And I wonder what you and I would do in that situation. And I think about Jesus' parables that are far better than my own. There once was a man who found a treasure buried in a field. And he sold all that he had to go and buy that treasure, that field that had the treasure in it. And he follows that up in Matthew 13 with another parable. He says, there was a man who loved to find pearls of great value. And having found a pearl of incredible value, he sold everything that he had to buy it. When we think about giving up everything, if we will focus on the magnificent riches of all that God has done for us, it motivates us to make sacrifices that we never thought possible. And I would submit to you that often when I find those that are unwilling to give God everything, as I look at a 45-year-old in the mirror every morning and I think about the places I'm unwilling to give God everything, that often my hesitation is directly related to my misunderstanding of the incredible mercy of God. And if I will focus on his mercy and all that he has done, I can't help but to sacrifice and to give up for all that he is and all that he's done. So again, my challenge to you this week as we look at leveraging our lives, let's start by being motivated by the mercy of God. Make an inventory of all that God has done for you. If you don't know what God has done for you, ask somebody. I would venture to say that everyone in this room knows someone who's been following Jesus longer than them. And if you're not yet following Jesus, you know someone who is following Jesus. Ask them, tell me about the mercies of God and let's list the mercies of God even together and let that motivate us to give him everything and then take that inventory. What are you holding back? And let's be a, a people, let's be a body, let's be a church that says, I'm gonna give God everything. All that I have and all that I am for all that he is. It's motivated by his mercy. Let's leverage our lives together. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for the power of your word. God, thank you for the power of Paul's words. And God, I pray that you would infuse them deep into our hearts. 
that you would lead us and guide us and strengthen us by them. And it's in your name I pray. Amen. While the worship team still comes up, I just realized I forgot the final part of my message. So I'm gonna give you the bonus, okay? At the end of Romans chapter 12, verse one, Paul says, this is your true and proper worship. The word that's translated true and proper in the original language is the Greek word logikos. If you were to take the Greek words, letters, and make them into their English sounds, it would be spelled L-O-G-I-K-O-S. It looks a lot like our word logical. And that's what logikos often means. It's logical, it's reasonable. Here's what Paul says. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer yourselves, give everything to God as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. He says, this is your true and proper worship. This is the only thing that makes sense. It's the only thing that's logical because God has done all this. We give him all of us. And so let's do the true and proper thing even as we worship him through songs.